This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. everybody this is Shannon and Kathy from Terror Talk. Um, this morning actually today whenever you're listening to this we're going to do our second part of the Lizzie Borden story basically. Uh, today we're going to deal with the trials uh, and I believe that Kathy this first part is going to be a setup for that get us back in the groove. Yeah there's a lot going on and I you know I was talking to Shannon um, off air, I guess we would call it, we call it that anymore. And, you know, it was really, I was really trying to figure out what important points to pull up because the book, which is wonderful, covers so much information. This is sort of my disclaimer, like I had with Ted Bundy, you know, we could have gone on and done six weeks of Ted Bundy easily, but I really just wanted to bring you guys the main points. Some of the stuff that stood out to me regarding the psychological parts of um, the era and the trial. And also um, Kara Robertson, who wrote the book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden, she did an amazing job. And I just want to, you know, give her credit for that, because this is where I got a lot of my information for today. Yeah, we'll shout out. Carla, excuse me. No, Cara. I'm right. I wrote it wrong. Looked at it wrong. <laughs> Cara, C-A-R-A Robertson, Cara. Uh, Cara Robertson? Yeah, Cara or Kara but it's C-A-R-A. Yeah. And the name of the book is The Trial of Lizzie Borden. The Trial of Lizzie Borden. Perfect. All right. Well, give us, give us the scene. Where, where are we at? It's, it's right before the trials, I guess. Or no, you're going to talk. Well, I'm going to talk real quickly just about the book in case anybody's interested. And then I'll set the tone for everybody and, and also introduce some of the other possible theories that were talked about um, over the last you know, oh, yeah. over a hundred years or whatever, because this case was never solved. Right. So, um, you know, you get a lot of people who are just fanatics. You have people who are historians and there's several other um, avenues that people went. So the trial uh, of Lizzie Borden was written by Kara Robertson. She began research, researching the Borden case as a Harvard under Harvard undergraduate in 1990. She's a very intelligent woman. She holds a PhD in English from Oxford university and, and a JD from Stanford University Law School. So she has experience clerking at the Supreme Court of the United States, and this is her first book. So she has been really, um, just like how you said with Manson, you know, really just researching him and like you've done with him, she's done with Borden for quite a while. Mm-hmm. So cool. the book, I really recommend the book. I think it's great. What I like about it, it's, it's written by a woman Um, But it's completely unbiased. You know, she doesn't go into any opinions about some of the absurdities. She really just writes the facts. Um, So there's this robust collection of historical data and facts in the book. And she she writes it all chronologically. And she really paints the era as well as the social and political climate. But again, without any sort of opinions, she just writes the facts. 
Right. So, you know, she, and she also does a really good job though at demonstrating how femininity, femininity was used as both as an excuse and as a weakness during the trial. So it's written very balanced. I really liked this book a lot. Great. No, I, I it seems like it's really good information. Yeah, she, it, it, it really is. So, um, so now I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a setup, um, around the time and I'll just real quickly revisit what Lizzie Borden was accused of. And, um, just in case those of you missed the first part and didn't listen to the first part. So this trial was really a sign of the time. Um, there really was this naive belief that a woman of her stature and Lizzie came from, um, wealthy heritage, even though her father, didn't always live that way. They lived well below their means. There was this belief in society that a woman of her stature and class would be an impossible suspect. Mm. So we're going into this trial with all already with a bias, you know, this type of, of individual could never do this uh, heinous of a commit this heinous of a crime. Mm. So profiling at this time was really based on sexist values and beliefs. Well, it's it's uh, it's positive bias, right? Because their the, their bias is that she couldn't have done it. It's a positive bias, but with um, I would say sort of microaggression underneath, yeah, which is absolutely. you know, women can't pull off something like this. But then, yeah, it's positive in the sense that it's like she's just too wonderful, she's too classy, she's too rich. So I think it's loaded with um, the, and that's why I was saying about Kara Robertson how she sort of presents this well-balanced, you know, representing it as a, as a weakness and as an excuse or a strength. Yeah, I guess, I guess it correlates to Bundy in the way that, you know, a lot of people had a positive bias towards him sure. good looking and articulate. It's amazing how much we put into the physical, like if someone looks a certain way, they must be innocent. Right. You know, right. and, and even profiling today is people ask me, you know, do you know, a, a profiler or do you, you know, I've had some people, um, who they're you know working on a case? I said profiling is actually an art; it's not a science. There's people aren't necessarily profilers for a living. Um, they profile cases, and some of them have a specialty in it, but they have another job. They're not just a profiler. Mm -hmm. And and profiling, it's gotten a little bit better because we've we're we do so much more. You know, psychology is an evolutionary science, so. But really, it's not always that accurate. <laughs> it's, it's, well, a lot of times it really yeah. leads you to the... Profilers in the FBI aren't even called profilers. They're called the behavioral unit. That's so. right. And, and a lot of times it will lead people to the exact opposite of who the actual perpetrator is. So, you know, Hollywood does not do a good job with really teaching people what profiling is. But anyway, yeah. Um, so, you know, the court... And here's another thing we talked about, Shannon, in the first episode. Is the court paints her as this young and innocent girl... But she was actually 32 years old. At the yeah, time for that day and age, that's a spinster. That's so. a spinster. And this is so, because she was a spinster, people looked at her as, um, you know, young and uh, inexperienced, all of that. So I think that also probably played a role in her, um, her acquittal. Yeah, yeah, so they saw her as a spinster, but naive, right? Yes. Yeah, Okay. Um, and she came from this, you know, Christian upbringing and did a lot of stuff with the church. <laughs> yeah. What, what's that? She taught Sunday school. <laughs> she taught Sunday school. Yeah. So the year is 1892. She is accused of a double homicide 
and the weapon is uh, a hatchet or an axe and that that we'll talk about that later she is lizzie borden's the main suspect so there are i have at least i have four other theories that i'll mm. briefly discuss okay the first one was that um bridget sullivan who is the borden's domestic servant um she's involved and actually is the the main suspect in this theory and Lizzie has protected her. And the motive was due to um, really being overworked and it was very hot. It was the summer and the heat, she was in the heat and she finally snapped that morning. Uh, if you watch the film, the, there's a lot of uh, theories around how she was abused or misused. And so there's one theory that Bridget Sullivan is actually the one who murdered them. Yeah. Um, that is explored in the film a little bit. It is explored, yeah, and it almost looks like in the in the film, like it's a collective, like they're both trying to escape whatever's going on, and they both are responsible for it. But Lizzie ends up being the one who's like, "Let me just finish it off." Right, like I think that made a more more interesting dramatic. Part. Sure. <laughs> um, the second one is Emma Borden, who is Lizzie's older sister. Uh, that she's actually the main suspect. And the motive would be based on the fact that she actually became Lizzie's surrogate mother mm. when her, her, their biological mother died. Right. And um, she actually testified that she had the strongest grudge about Abby's role in the property dispute. Mm. So she could have returned from her trip in Fairhaven. She was away on a trip when, when the parents died. She could have returned from her trip in Fairhaven, killed Abby, secreted herself in the house until after her father's return, killed him, and then disposed of the weapon somewhere far from the scene. Interesting. Yeah, because she was a good 10 years older than Lizzie. She was older, and she was the only other person with a key to the house because everything was locked up when they investigated. Well, and like you said, she had a deeper resentment for the stepmom. And right. I would imagine that comes from the fact that, you know, she was about 12 when mom died, and Lizzie was only like two, so... Yeah. In a 12 year old when their mom dies, that's a huge trauma. That's right. And honestly, this doesn't, I mean, I don't know where she would have hid in the house. There were a lot of little, um, but totally possible. And if you, the book actually lays out the, the architecture of the house, there's a blueprint. Okay. And there's a lot of little like secret doors and walls and oh, God. like places that she could have hid if she wanted to. Okay. Um, so it's really not that far fetched. Um, it's, it's probably unlikely, but it's not far-fetched. It's not like that is no way. There's no way. Yeah. You could put um, it together with some duct tape, <laughs> the theory. Yes. <laughs> and then the other, um, the third one is John Morse, who is Lizzie and Emma's biological mother's brother. So their uncle, mm -hmm. um, his, uh, he was actually accused of, because he was there that morning and um but the problem was is his alibi was too perfect that it must it would it would have been um nearly impossible you know for him to concoct that kind of alibi okay um so they they ruled him out but for a while he was a suspect because he had been brought into the property stuff um but they his alibi was too too perfect and then the last one and this one, I think, is more goes back to there's no possible way that Lizzie could have done this is some actually some people actually believe that Jack the Ripper came to the United States. <laughs> OK, <laughs> yeah. And there are some people because of the type of crime, um, although he never really went. Into, I don't think he went into people's homes. I think his stuff was more, you know, at night. 
yeah, in the street. So those are the four, there's probably more, but those are the four other theories that came up while I was doing research. Okay. Um, it would have been a little bit off the rails with the Jack the Ripper. Not that it's, you know, not, you know, couldn't have happened. It's just, they're reaching a little there. They're reaching. And also I think it, when we're looking at um, how much that community really were about image and how every, they were rich and they were privileged. They were like, no American of our status could do. It must have been Jack the Ripper. He must yeah, have come to know. Him, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, they obviously don't know his um, his victimology either. because No, absolutely yeah. not. And somewhat of a narcissistic theory that he cared that much to come over. Right. <laughs> and yeah. and yeah. kill Lizzie's parents. And yeah. then he picks the spinster girl when he's been killing hookers for, you know. Like, yes, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, no, really no. you can probably check that one off. Right. So there were four lawyers, there were, excuse me, um, multiple lawyers. And this is important because, again, it reflects the amount of money that went into this case. So the defense counsel and the prosecution were all very high profile, but the de- her defense counsel, they noted as like a celebrity counsel. She had the best of the best. Okay. Um, so she had her defense lawyer, Melvin Adams. Andrew Jennings, who was the family lawyer, the Borden family lawyer, Arthur Phillips, Arthur S. Phillips, who was an associate of Andrew Jennings, George D. Robinson, who is the former governor of Massachusetts and Lizzie Borden's defense lawyer. So she had the best. She couldn't have handpicked a better defense counsel. And then part of it was also, um, you know, they, they, they did such a good job at making sure certain evidence did not get into the trial. Um, because the, the, when we talked about the prussic acid in the first episode, which I'll talk a little bit about today, um, they got that thrown out, that that was not, um, so they did a really good job. And then the prosecution, we have uh, Knowlton, who's pretty much the big guy on this, um, on the defense counsel, and he was the district attorney for the Southern District of Massachusetts. William H. Moody, who is the DA of Essex County. Okay. And Albert Albert E. Pillsbury, who's the Attorney General of Massachusetts, so um, a lot of really high profile people on this case. And then there were four judges on the case as well. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you can imagine, you know, everyone uh, the build up to this case and and the amount of people on this case were really insane. So yeah, high profile for what? Well, that's what we call high profile these days, right? Very. Ho- this would be this would have been the OJ of its time. Yeah, I, I just said that a minute ago. I was oh, like, did you? I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I threw it in. I was like, yeah, it's just like O.J. Simpson, the dream team. And then she got off, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And even the right. way they treated the jury and everything, it's very similar. So, excuse me, I have allergies this morning. Um, mm-hmm. the, so to revisit the crime really quickly, on the morning of August 4th, 1892, Andrew and Abby Borden were brutally murdered in their home between the hours of 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Both of them took over 10 blows to the head. I think, I think um, Abby had 10 and I think Andrew had 11, I believe. So unlike the, the poem. Right. And uh, 10 blows to the head with an axe or a hatchet, severely disfiguring them, mm. shattering their skulls. And Andrew was beyond recognition. Went right through his eye, right through his tooth. It was very brutal. Yeah, I, I'm, I've seen the pictures. It's really gruesome. Very gruesome. So... Here's an eerie piece of information. Um, so that morning, Andrews and, the, and Bridget actually testified to this in court, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. So Andrew comes back from 
you know, they all have that breakfast that morning. Andrew and John Morris leave. Uh, Andrew comes home. Where's Abby? Oh, Abby, you know, went out to meet a sick friend who sent out a note or whatever. So he wouldn't go look for her. So everybody was gone except for Bridget and Lizzie. Emma was on her trip in Fairhaven. So Bridget uttered, and as Andrew's coming through the door, Bridget utters something that evokes a laugh from Lizzie, who's descending from the front landing. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. I get chills when I say this. She's descending from the front landing. She is directly opposite from the open door of the guest room where Abby's body is lying. Mm-hmm. So when they say that they couldn't find Abby for hours and, and they've, they had forensic uh, professionals go in and say from where she was standing, could she have seen the body? This is the only time that proves if Bridget, and, and this is just Bridget's testimony. This mm-hmm. is the only time that proves that, that um, Lizzie actually was standing right across and could not have missed that body mm-hmm. and evoking a laugh. Like, you know, she's seeing this and she's so, so detached. So there's no way she could have missed seeing Abby lying there. Yeah. You, you said Bridget said something to her? I guess she just said, yeah, she made a comment or something. And I'm not okay. really sure what it was. Okay. But Andrew, you know, Andrew's walking in and then uh, Bridget says, yes, you know, she sort of set up the scene when Andrew had come in. Bridget's right, right. Exactly. So the, the point is, is that she was the uh, Bridget's testimony puts her at the spot where she could, she, she could see the like, body very hard right. to have seen the body there. And, and, and which is uh, important because I believe Abby was found. She was found second because Andrew then takes a nap shortly after. Um, and he takes a nap on the couch in the living room. And that would be his last sleep because that's when he would be murdered. So, uh, that is the setup. So the era, mm-hmm. uh, I want to I talk a little bit about the era, too. In this era, America derived its vision of the criminal model, the, of the criminal, excuse me, from European models, mm-hmm. specifically a man by the name of Cesar Lombroso. So the first case of insanity was actually under British common law. Okay, so so much of American law was predicated in European theory and case law at this time. Mm-hmm. They, uh, Lombroso believed, um, and we've heard this in the past before, criminals at this time were born, not made. They were not women. Women could not be pr- criminals. <laughs> right. Right. So after the murder, the initial suspect was a Swedish or Portuguese guy who was aboard in Zomploy. Um, but the Fall River police expected to find, uh, you know, he, he, they let him go. But the police were really looking to find like a depraved foreigner with an accent, basically. Okay. Yeah. Right. That, that's like, the Jack the Ripper thing. That, that Jack makes, the Ripper, some Portuguese guy. It must be a Swede that's mad at Andrew Borden. So, yeah, right. it, it, this, the criminal model was a, a foreign man, basically. Okay. <laughs> Um, even when the investigation pointed to an effeminate form of hacking, so they, they when they looked at the bodies, they said no man hit this these two people with an axe. The way that the axe came down, it's effeminate, which I think is hysterical. Yeah, that is. The, even okay. at that time, the authorities pointed toward a Chinaman due to the racial theories of the day. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So 
no one even wanted to consider a woman, let alone Lizzie, being the perpetrator of this. Yeah, they didn't even want to consider a local, much less Mm -mm. a female local who teaches Sunday school. (laughs) That's right. She was at the (laughs) bottom of the list. Yeah. She was all the way down at the bottom of the list. But, but, you know, to their credit, they managed to bring her to trial. They arrested her and brought her to trial. I mean. Right. And we'll get into the the, um, the arrest because really what it comes down to is there was nobody else. There was nobody else that they could have. They they wiped out. They even wiped out a poor Chinaman who had nothing to do, you know. Everything. Not everything. They went through everything. So Knowlton, remember, he's the DA on the case. Right was sworn in two years prior to this murder. Mm -hmm. And at that time, he recommended exempting minors and women from the death penalty. So way before this case, and now now here he is um, as the district attorney on the case, you know, biting his tongue because he knows she did it. Mm -hmm. But two years prior to this, he exempted minors and women from the death penalty. So another thing I want to bring up is Clearly, no DNA evidence was around at this time. The first DNA evidence case was 1986. So, and then yeah. fingerprints would not be used for a whole other decade. Right. So, all they have to go on is looking at the house, talking to witness. I mean, look, imagine, I mean, how many cases do you think a year, Shannon, are, are proved because of DNA or fingerprints? I know. I was just thinking, like, all of the ancient cases, you know, if they had even... If they had even known to take samples of things, right? Like they didn't even do that kind of forensics. Nope. Um, to even be able to process any of that. It's like you kind of, uh, I don't know, there's probably a TV show because there's a TV show about everything, but it's like to process or to figure out these old cases from DNA. And I'm sure they would have solved the crime. We would know easily. Yeah. Easily. So. <clears throat> kind of keeping in line with the mental health stuff. So the first insanity case was in 1843. We talked about this back when we did the, um, you and I did an episode on clinical insanity mm-hmm. a while back and, and psychopathy and all that. So we talked about the Minotan law. So it became the common rule for the ruling of insanity. And we, we use it here in the state of California and most states now use it. I would say the majority of states use it. And it's a legal term, not a clinical term. So insanity is a legal term, it's not a clinical term. Right. And it refers to a mental defect to which the individual has demonstrated the inability to differentiate right from wrong. Or if they appear to know the difference, they did not know that what they were doing was causing harm. Mm-hmm. So the Boston Herald pointed out Lizzie's calm and cool demeanor during the investigation and paradoxically proved, provided the best evidence of her insanity. Hmm. Police circles and government officers believed as well that Lizzie was insane at the time of her offense. So before I say any more about that, any, any reactions to that from you? That they, sorry, reactions to which, which part? Just the, how they, they saw insanity and believe that her demeanor pointed to insanity. Yeah, no, I, I, I <laughs> this is the thing is it's like she it could be ripped out of that day and time and be in this day and time. And we would have a very, very, very different view of her, obviously. And in that day and time, they didn't even want to arrest a woman. And she, but she, and she's so cool as a cucumber, at least the way they picture her and the way they describe her. 
is that she's she's really cool as a cucumber and so then so you've got this positive bias around oh she's a woman she's delicate she's a spinster she couldn't possibly do this and then she sh- actually shows up and you're confronted with this personality that you go oh well maybe she could mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. oh wait so I understand why it when you try people just based on culture which you know let's not pretend we don't do that in these this day and age we just it just looks different um but when you try people on just the way they look the way they speak the cultural norms of the time then I obviously I get why the why everybody was confused because they're just looking at sort of okay my personal bias is that it couldn't have been a woman but right. she shows up and she's kind of you know you, you kind of I'm sure the audience was like yeah spinster that's right because no one would want to be around that you know yeah. there's this whole cultural bias of like coldness and strength and all of that yeah but then they're going oh okay well maybe she did do it you know right and 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 the the funny thing is is um we haven't even really gotten in I'm going to finish here in a minute with this first part talking about the the hysterical piece, which was big at that time. But also when we think about the difference between moral insanity and clinical insanity. So if someone's clinically insane, Mm -hmm. they are, um, they're not calm and cool. Oh no. (laughs) Okay. They're they're flipping psychotic and crazy. Palpable palpable agitation. (laughs) Yeah. And I I mean I've had to rehospitalize clients who decompensate and you know were found not guilty by reason of insanity. It's it's nothing like this. But moral insanity at that time was what they referred how they referred to psychopathy. Mm. And so moral insanity was which we don't really call it that anymore. Um could this basically they're saying could she be a psychopath? because she has more male traits, right? Okay. So the doctor, so after, after this whole thing comes up, could she be insane? The doctors denied that insanity was indicated, nor, nor was there any indication of hysteria, which was a common diagnosis in women at that time. So, and we kind of do this now Mm -hmm. where we diagnose more women with borderline personality disorder and more men with antisocial personality disorder, just statistically. Right. And so hysteria was sort of the borderline or histrionic version at that time. And um, hysteria was notable in young unmarried women and mm-hmm. first believe it was due to a wandering womb and later at an act, uh, due from actual neurological causes. Yeah. So they, Lizzie, oh, sorry, go ahead. Don't understand. <laughs> What's yeah. that? They didn't know. They didn't know. They clearly they didn't know. <laughs> so Lizzie um, was menstruating during the time of the murders. So physicians attributed many of the behaviors um, and illness due to the menstruation and noted it would actually lower a woman's resistance to forbidden impulses. Oh, for the love of God. Right. And therefore instilling more (laughs) criminogenic behavior. (laughs) Your period makes you kill. Your period makes you kill. If that were the case with the amount of PMS driven women every day, we would have more female serial killers than men. Because we get pissed. Right. I was, PMS I was, is ugly. So if that was, was really the cause, we know what I was thinking. Most of the women I know curl up in a ball. They don't go. That's right. Kill anyone. They're not cutting people with, with uh, hatchets. So, right. <laughs> um, so women's illnesses were viewed as more nervous and mental than physical at that time. Everything was emotional. Yeah. She's being emotional. And I think 
even now when women hear that we have such an aversive reaction to it because it's like not everything is about emotions guys sometimes we just really feel like shit yeah 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 i I, I get that the genders are very different Mm -hmm. have a whole conversation about that some other time or actually we 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 throw it in when we can but but yeah as far as lizzie's concerned i i can see why they were so befuddled by her affect for sure this was nothing they'd ever seen before right so just to close up this sort of piece around it women's illnesses um women were actually taught to rest on their periods so it would lower their hysteria or if they had hysteria to rest and a man by the name of dr mitchell dr s weir mitchell explained women rap morally if long nervously ill okay yeah so oh if they didn't know they didn't know so lizzie (laughs) just to your point what you're saying lizzie actually presented as more psychopathological and unfeeling than hysterical Mm -hmm. or insane yeah but psychopathy was a masculine trait so the world was truly amazed by her presentation yeah they hadn't seen it before so right i understand their confusion so in the closing arguments of the case which uh the prosecution described her period as a monthly illness causing imbalance, temporary insanity in which an otherwise sane woman might be tragically susceptible to an insane impulse. That was the defense. That okay. was the defense. So, no, that was the prosecution. <laughs> the prosecution was that this is why she did it. So the trauma, which I think is really interesting because they don't talk about this at all, is trauma was never mentioned, highlighted, or even explored as a potential motive or impulse. Never talked about how, what was going on in that house. No, I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, we're just starting to talk about trauma. Yeah. In our culture, they weren't, they weren't thinking about the traumas that she had endured or, I mean, no. no. And nobody want, nobody painted Andrew as, as a bad man. Nobody did. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I just think like we can't even get, um, accurate or even robust trauma um, diagnoses in the DSM-5, much less talk about trauma 100 years ago. It's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, we're still not there. So, No, it just, it's really, like you were saying earlier, if you could bring her into the now, how different this case would have looked. Oh my gosh, so different. And I'm sure anyone listening, I know I am, is like picturing what it would be like now. It's just yeah. so, but that's why it's so important to talk about the cultural pieces of this, because if you look at it from a modern sensibility, you go, what, what, I'm sorry, what, she didn't kill them because of her period? Excuse me. <laughs> I, <don't understand. laughs> I, I, I mean, I've wanted to kill people on my period, but yeah, I've never right? done it. Yeah, She did, she didn't, she's cold and on her period, and thus she's an axe murderer. <laughs> Fantastic. Um <laughs> Well, well, I think this is a this is a good place to take a break. We're going to come back and talk about um, her inquest and arrest and and the preliminary hearings. Perfect. We'll be back in a moment. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hey 
everyone, we're back. Okay, this is the second segment today of the Lizzie Borden story. I believe we're going to sort of get into the arrest. Is that what's happening now? Yeah, we're going to talk about how she really became the suspect, and it really was by process of elimination. Okay. Um, as well as her being one of the only, she would be one of the only people who had access to the house, and yeah. um, so much of the house was locked up. That it was really hard to accuse anybody else. It was her or it was Bridget. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So on August 9th, uh, the inquest on the Borden murders began. So the murder was on the 4th. So about five days later, Bridget Sullivan, again, who's the domestic servant, was the first person to be questioned. So she was the first one to solidify that there was contention in the house. Okay. But she stayed due to her loyalty to Abby. This is what she declares anyway. Um, a woman that, that Bridget described as lovely. Mm. Um, she was a cooperative witness and her story was straightforward. So there were no inconsistencies. Nobody really thought Bridget to be um, shady about anything. She ended up being a very helpful witness in the case. I imagine, I imagine they questioned her first because she's the, the manual labor of the house. Right. She and knows all the, all the dirty secrets. Yeah. And if we're going with the cultural norms we were just discussing, it's like the, you know, poor people are more likely, even though she was a female. So they wouldn't have necessarily suspected her, but they might have thought she was involved because she was the help. Yep. Is that the idea? I think that they, and, and I also think they thought, I don't know if they saw her as a suspect yet, or if it was, was more of, this is someone who's going to have every bit of information. Yeah, everybody knew the the people who worked in your house had all of the gossip, right? Right, because she was living. She lived there. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. Okay. She had her. Yeah. So, um, so after Bridget Knowlton, again, who's the district attorney on the case, calls Lizzie. Lizzie and Bridget were the only two known in the home during the murders, right? Unless we go with the, the old theory, one of the theories that Emma was sleeping in the walls or something. Well, you know, it was Jack the Ripper. So. Or, or Jack the Ripper. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so he calls Lizzie. Lizzie is now the main suspect in the case because they have ruled out all these other theories. Bridget's testimony adds up. Um, she's now the main suspect, her attorney, Andrew Jennings. Mm -hmm. So Lizzie's attorney, Andrew Jennings tries to interfere in the questioning and basically say, she doesn't need to answer this right now. But Knowlton is like, no, that is, this is part of the process. You cannot interfere. Okay. So Jennings loses his bid. He loses his bid. So she testifies in this, um, in the, I mean, not testifies. She answers these questions, mm -hmm. but she's extremely evasive. And she's using word salad and taking them around in circles. Oh my. Right. So um, she, she would also decline to elaborate on a lot of issues, including how often something as innocuous as how often her uncle John Morse had visited their home in the past year. So he'd be like, so, uh, so once or twice, once or twice, what, like in the month and the year, I don't, I mean, she would right. take him on these things and he, it almost looked like she was intentionally trying to just throw everything off or piss him off. And I really, just super quick, I want yeah. to clarify that um, word salad is a phrase oh, thank you. Used, used in psychology. It means, you know, sort of confused mixture of random words. 
um, it's it's a symptom of certain of, of advanced schizophrenia actually, but you know it's just a it's a speech form that you would recognize it if you saw it. It's like the words don't go together. It's like They're, nonsensical. Yeah. Right. Nonsensical. So, you know, if you've ever encountered someone with schizophrenia, a lot of times the they're speaking to you as if the sentence really makes sense, but it, it when you listen to it, it doesn't make sense. It's random words. So anyway, I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, that. no, thank you. And I'm not sure if her, like, um, if it was, I'll, I'll say that it wasn't more, it wasn't like a psych, in a psychotic sense, but it was, she was looking to confuse him. Right, right. It, it, it was a manipulation. That's right. You. Okay. Yeah. And her stories were conflicting. Now, my only thing is, is that, um, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard this too, Shannon, but if they, a lot of times when they investigate people, sto- uh, somebody's conflicting story is not necessarily a sign of guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, sometimes if it's more manicured, that can be a sign of guilt. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, we'll get confused under pressure. Absolutely. So her <laughs> Even stories, when we're innocent. <laughs> what'd you say? Even when we're innocent. <laughs> yeah, because th- that could be due to nerves that could be due. However, she wasn't showing any nerves. She wasn't showing any of that distress. Her stories were just conflicting. Well, she was penned up, you know. I mean, we could make an argument. We could go off on a serious tangent about how how trauma affects the brain and affect and 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 how, you know, she she had abil- she probably had abilities to compartmentalize um mm-hmm. a- a emotion. So, but I yeah, but, we don't know how much of that was intentional yeah. or just the way that she was organizing. Yeah. Sure. So, for example, once she stated she was downstairs when her father came mm-hmm. home, and then in another, she was upstairs. So these, this is just an example. So even when the discrepancies or lack of details were highlighted, she did stay very calm and did not change her demeanor at all. So she was unmoved yeah. through most of her Um. A number of important facts that came up during her inquest. So the attempted purchase of the prussic acid, um, the family will, and what she was wearing the morning of the murders. These are some things that become very important uh, events in the trial. But in summation, there was uh, the unsuccessful purchase of prussic acid was believed to be the motive for a readily available household device like an axe or a hatchet. Um, so when she wasn't able to get the prussic acid, that's when they tried to link. Well, then that's why she went to get the hatchet because that was more readily available because she couldn't get the prussic acid and she was already in that mode to kill them. So she found something that, which is super interesting. Um, And I don't know if I'm speaking intelligently when I say this, but (laughs) which is fine. Um, you know, switching from poison to a ax is like, I don't know, (laughs) like, like you're planning on killing right. someone with poison that's such a passive you know right. I mean people think people think it's passive and nonviolent but it's actually a pretty violent death but I mean you can slip someone poison and 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 walk away whereas a hatchet that is I mean in these brutal murders I mean I don't I just no, no, it, you're absolutely right and this is you're you're on point because this is where the court threw mm-hmm. out even being able to use the prussic acid because they're like, first of all, buying poison, it doesn't necessarily mean now she has a motive to use a hatchet to right. kill somebody. So um, that's why that was thrown out. But also to your point, using a hatchet is much more of a, a passionate, angry uh, kill. 
right? So it's like if she was really angry, the hatchet would be, um, you know, and the amount of blows. Yeah, I mean, if that to me cold blooded murder, like if she's this cold blooded person that that she's portrayed to be, the axe makes a whole lot of sense, and and the poison not so much. (laughs) Like, yeah, right. But then the poison makes more sense with her being a female of the time, right? Because it's and this is where the confusion this is where all this confusion is so but the the purchase of the prussic acid was what led to her arrest but then it was thrown out in court yeah so she was arrested and and she clearly took the announcement of her arrest with surprising Mm -hmm. calmness she was described as indifferent and people waited for this mask to slip. They were not believing gotcha. um, that this was what we were seeing. So now I'm going to take you guys to the preliminary hearing real quickly. So Jennings knew that this was the defense's only opportunity to stop Borden's prosecution. They had to kill it in the preliminary hearing. So Lizzie sat in jail all the way waiting for this trial but then she shows up in this blue bonnet trimmed with ribbon a small flower blue veil they really wanted her to appear innocent plain and yeah like early trial manipulation (laughs) they were doing it even then that's right like how could this delicate little flower you know create something so um destructive so knowlton the da intends to expose lizzie's motive during the preliminary Mm -hmm. hearing So calls in the medical examiner. He was able to point out that Abby had been deceased two hours before Andrew and their examinations. So I think we were talking about this in the, in the first, the first part last Mm -hmm. week, the order of death plays a big role in who gets the inheritance and all of that. So that became a big, a big deal that Abby had been deceased two hours before Andrew and their examinations When the medical examiner stated that both skulls had been removed from the bodies and therefore her father's body was buried headless, Lizzie really only appeared startled for an instant. Mm -hmm. Um, And they compared her to more of a spectator in the benches a dozen feet away. So they're presenting all this information. And you and I know as psychologists, as therapists, that uh, there's not a standardized reaction to trauma. So to me, I'm like, that doesn't necessarily indicate uh, that she was unaffected or that she's right, a murderer. Right. You know, uh, it, it's inconclusive. <laughs> it's inconclusive, but I would imagine most people going like, how are we so affected by this and we're not even related and she's just sitting there so stoked. Right, I, I mean, I I can make an argument for that being um, her nature, but but I, mm-hmm. I obviously don't know. I mean, I see how it looks, you know, and unfortunately right. how thing, how people, how people's, personalities i mean i'm in the biz right so people's personalities mm-hmm. have a big part of this and um and i can see how if i'm sitting there i'm looking and at the affect of someone who is capable of doing this kind mm-hmm. of crime so right whether it's trauma so or not, like the trauma could cause the personality traits it doesn't it doesn't absolutely it doesn't bear any like you know evidence to whether or not she did the crime or not so no, and it's consistent with everything we've seen up until right. now. I may have been more thrown off if I saw her losing right. right there. So her sister, Emma, was actually more moved by the hearing than she was, which makes sense. She was away. Um, everything probably felt very uh, chaotic. And, you know, here she comes home, half her family's dead. So the courtroom 
um, they compare, they use this as a comparison to the courtroom was very warm and it was the summer, but Lizzie still needed a woolen shawl. So this happened to be another indication of her special ability to remain cool when others were excited okay. or warm. Yeah. So when Bridget, Bridget now testifies in the preliminary hearing, she never made eye contact with Lizzie, nor did she look up when Lizzie entered the courtroom. Any reaction? Any, any of that? She never, she never looked up. She never even, like, she just looked at her feet the whole time? She, um, I, I guess she just looked down. Oh. Well, yeah, I guess she just looked down. That's um, it's kind of sad. I mean, I don't know if it's like she couldn't watch her sister go down for her. I don't know. I mean, her her person go down for her. I mean, I don't know. Gosh, that could be interpreted yeah. in so many ways, right? Like yes. guilt yeah. or shame or fear or just like she couldn't watch it happen. I don't know. Um. Uh, yeah, I think there's mixed emotions that she has to talk about someone she was so close to. I mean, yeah, who knows, right? right? So, um, and also, you know, she was the one who who solidified that she and Lizzie were the only known people in the house between Andrew's departure yeah. and the discovery of right. his body. So during the closing arguments, and after the motive of prussic acid had been suggested, Jennings spoke of Lizzie's attachment to her father and projected a youthful picture of a young daughter in her father. It was then that Lizzie burst into tears, sitting with her hands in her eyes. So it wasn't until she brought up that. So that's pretty much the end of the preliminary hearing. We're going to take one last break and then come back and talk about the trial and the outcome. Great. And, um, and then that'll be it. Perfect. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. We're back. This is the la third and last portion of today's show. Um, I believe Kathy's going to get into the trial. Yes. So we just finished up the preliminary hearing. So now the trial. So Lizzie is indicted on December 2nd, 1892, and the trial begins on June 5th, 1893. Okay. Uh, so the Pro Providence Journal, there were so many journalists at the time and so many different papers there. Providence Journal, quote, states one of the greatest murder trials in the world's yeah. history the amount of journalists and reporters was astounding some were wired in from a separate structure um those who didn't fit in the courtroom gathered outside for hours so many people were at this mm -hmm. hearing it was amazing um but her appearance was described as a bit of a disappointment, <laughs> disappointment. <and plain. laughs> a bit of a disappointment in plain i don't know if they thought she was going to come in with like full makeup what... and juggling. I, I don't know what she <laughs> was expecting. But... I, I think they wanted her to come in just looking crazy, but she was modest, <laughs> calm, quiet. Fair. Um, and, and they described her as, uh, I don't know if, if Robertson described her this way or they described her this way at the time, but it was plain to see she had a complete mastery of herself and could make her sensations and emotions invisible yeah. to an impertinent public. So I think she was just, getting used to putting horse blinders on yeah you bet and just getting there so i just want to mention the biggest points of the trial because there's too much to go into with the trial the biggest points were entrance to the house whether or not the purchase of prussic acid would be admitted as evidence and how that would relate to a motive okay. of murder where is the supposed note that abby received that morning and why did she leave where is the hatchet or the axe that was used to kill Andrew and Abby? And what happened to the dress she was wearing the morning? Yeah, of the I don't 
these were the really big pieces. Very big pieces. Okay. Bridget confirmed that the cellar and side doors were bolted from the inside. So this allowed prosecution to focus on the small window of opportunity on the morning of August 4th. Just the front door would be the only way someone Mm -hmm. could get in. The prussic acid argument was thrown out as prosecution could not prove that it was a correlational factor to, um, uh, for motive or any sort of criminogenic thinking. Lizzie volunteered information regarding the note. Andrew never asked her specifically. So this goes back again to storytelling and someone innocent versus guilty. He never asked her specifically. Um, and I would imagine that Bridget was there to witness this and that's how they oh, have this information. Yeah. Okay. The note was never found, nor did they ever identify the quote-unquote sick friend Abby went to to comfort. So when Andrew asked where she was, it was more of like, um, uh, here's this, there's this note. She gave too much, too many details, which we know if you watch forensic files or any (laughs) of that stuff, that a lot of times that's a bad indication. This is where, so the, the, as far as the hatchet goes, this is where um, the prosecution really may have lost the police gave contradictory testimony about the hatchet. Okay. There, were, there was discrepancy as to whether the handle of the axe was ever found in the house. So what I haven't mentioned is when the hatchet was found without a handle, it was cut mm-hmm. off. So the police um, gave contradictory testimony about whether or not that handle was ever found in the house. Therefore, the prosecution could not conclude whether or not the handleless hatchet was actually the murder weapon because you can't really murder someone without the the handle. You can't just take the blade. So that really threw off the prosecution stuff. The blue dress she was wearing the morning of the murders was never found. She had reported burning it due to a paint spill. When the police interviewed her that afternoon after the murder, she was wearing a pink wrapper. She was wearing something different. So, um, but they never found, so I don't know if in between the murder and the police yeah. being there, she was like, oh, I've paint on my dress. Even though my parents just got murdered, I'm going to go burn yeah. that now because they never found it during the invest. It wasn't like it was just lying out on her. No, bed right. Okay. So prosecution in the end blames her menstruation on causing an imbalance, creating temporary insanity. Prosecution lost the major rulings on evidence. They really were the underdog okay. in this. The defense stated that there was a moral impossibility for her to commit the murders. So much of the verdict was based on a moral belief system versus scientific Mm -hmm. findings. And another interesting fact with that was Andrew's reputation was preserved during the trial and nobody questioned Lizzie's persecuted life, which we sort of talked about with Mm -hmm. the trauma. So the New York Times declared, quote, this is a quote from the New York Times, the acquittal of the most unfortunate and cruelly persecuted woman was by the promptness, a condemnation of the police authorities and of the legal officers who secured the indictment and have conducted the trial. It was a declaration not only that the prisoner was guiltless, but there were never any serious reason to suppose that she was guilty. Her acquittal is the only a partial atonement for the wrong that she has Mm. suffered, unquote. Mm. She comes out of this trial, but her notoriety doesn't last long. After the trial, she's ostracized, but she remains in Fall River despite the ongoing harassment. She ends up living a very basic life. She took comfort in living by herself. She had Boston Terriers. She was a huge animal lover. She gave half of her, more than half of her uh, money to 
uh, Animal Rescue, Humane Society, all of that when she dies. And she ends up befriending the children of her own domestic staff. And she ends up just turning inward and reclusive um, and above all silent. So she ended up living the rest of her life in Fall River, but really living uh, like a recluse and just, you know, her dogs and some some acquaintances. And that was it. I mean, I imagine what she went through doesn't really, I mean, she didn't have friends to begin with, so. Yeah, so, and then, you know, just interesting, she stays there again, unmoved by all the harassment and all yeah, that. She just that was there. her life. She refused this ability she refused to, to leave. detach from things. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, do you, uh, so there it is. I want to ask you this, do you think she did it? Oh. <sighs> That's um, the question, right? <laughs> that is the question. And I I honestly think that there are a lot of motives, um, emotional motives for her. If, if we go with the theory that she was repressed and she and her father was not the great man that everyone painted mm-hmm. him to be. Now, would that mean she'd go as far as murdering? I don't know. I don't know. I think there... I, I, I'm really sort of in the middle on this. I don't know because there's so much pointing to how brutal of a murder this was, her relationship with her father prior to this. Would she go as far as killing them both? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, no. it's interesting because there's a part of me that thinks that can come up with a psychological motive. You know, if we think about it, you know, her mother died when she was two. Um, he he remarries and goes with Abby or what have you when when Lizzie's like what four or five. And then um, there's this point at which, you know, they have this good relationship, but then there's this point where the dad, you know, her dad buys a house for Abby's sister or something. And that's the first outlay Mm -hmm. of a lot of money. And that is uh, the narrative. It suggests that that was a, you know, like that was a re-traumatization of, of um, certainly her and her older sister of like, you're going to give this woman, you know, this, they they just saw it as a betrayal. And then that's when sort of things start to unravel. Um, Right. It just, you know, you can see it from a trauma standpoint and I don't, I don't really know what was going on, you know, that day. That's just it. That's just it. We don't have enough of the, the systemic information in the family. All of those pieces of information we have, um, what history has provided us. And I just don't know if we have it all. Yeah, no, I, probably not. And we never will. But um, it, that's why it gets debated all the time and discussed and movies are made, et cetera, because we get to go back and forth about motive and did she do it and did she not? And I mean, I, I certainly haven't done a lot of research and read a bunch of stuff about it. So it's a really interesting yeah, case. Sure. I didn't know a lot of this, the underpinnings of it before. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sure it's it's um, going to be debated for years to come. <laughs> um, how did she die? Did she just die of natural whatever eventually? Yeah, she uh, I believe I think it was pneumonia. She dies. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Like just at home. Died, yeah, probably. All right. All righty. Yeah, well, that's so... the trial of Lizzie Borden. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kathy. That was really interesting. I'd never really learned. I personally had never really learned much about Lizzie Borden. 
Um, it's kind of gone out of favor as one of the things people talk about a bunch. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. so that was really interesting for me. Um, I hope you all enjoyed it as well. And we'll be back next week to start our uh, series on Manson. So excited for that. Yay. It, it'll probably last forever. There's so much. To <laughs> There's about. so much on him. I know. There's so much to talk about every, you know, every time I look at it, it's like, oh, I'm going down a rabbit hole. So, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so again, we are not doing our what the hell segments when we do these beefier uh, meteor episodes. So, uh, but we'll be back at it eventually. Um, so this is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.